Hey, Alex, how are you doing? Good, man. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm so glad that you were able to come on over to We Live on a Planet so we can talk about your movie, Camp Colebrook. I'm really excited about it. I have a lot of questions. I'll try to contain my excitement. No, uh, I, the more excitement, the better. In fact, I, I prefer that you would maybe fake it. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I usually do here at We Live on a Planet? Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Stay true to form. Yeah. So, you know, I went before um, I decided to call you, I went over to the Internet Movie Database, the IMDB, and I'm seeing, yeah, I'm seeing you used to be in front of the camera. What made you decide to get behind the camera and start writing? Uh, probably lack of work. <laughs> OK, yeah. No, I mean, in all fairness, you know, I did uh, pursue acting for a stretch when I first moved to Los Angeles. Um. My wife and I started a special effects makeup supply business, uh, I guess, around 1998, 99. And at that time, I just kind of parted ways with it. I did do a few things, a little soap thing here and a TV show episode there. And, uh, you know, it just it just kind of went by the wayside. It's one of those things, you know, <clears throat> the acting business, from what I saw, it's um it's probably harder than breaking in that way than it is as a screenwriter and screenwriting is you know obviously has its high hurdles that you have to get past a lot of gatekeepers yeah i can't even i can't even imagine it uh, even the undertaking of trying to break into hollywood when there's so many faces out there but you know it was weird i saw though that you were because it gives a list of some of the things but Married with children. Wow. That, I, I didn't I know that. Let me let me correct that right now. The, <laughs> okay. I was never on Married with Children. So the thing with the Internet Movie Database, they're 98% accurate. Oh, okay. Um, with Married with Children, uh, no, they were not accurate because I, I think whatever they list the date of that show, I don't even think I was living here at that time. But Right. Um, so yeah, that was a mix up, but there was another credit that I had, I forget what it was that dropped and like flipped with, um, that episode. I don't know why. And I've never actually contacted them to correct it because it's just, you know, it's such a blip now. Right. Right. It was, but I will say, though. you know, one thing, uh, not to cut you off. No, that's fine. <laughs> that's, that's my MO is cutting people off. <laughs> that's um, fine. Is no, I will say, you know, the uh, the acting part of it did. I feel now, you know, there was definitely a benefit from that in that um, when it came to writing dialogue, you know, because obviously you do a lot of scene study classes, you're up on your feet working and uh, in class or in plays or whatever it may be. And so you're always trying to study. And of course, doing that, you're reading lots and lots and lots of script, not full scripts, usually just scenes, sides. And but, you know, full length plays and you quickly uh, learn what sounds right and what sounds false, because there are I mean, that's the biggest I think one of the biggest tricks and I'm still trying to get my hands around it now is, you know, writing anything, but especially in screenwriting, the dialogue is is, <clears throat> you know, it's so important. And there's a certain um, there's a certain cadence to dialogue written, reading it on the page that sounds right and you know it rings true to people or whoever the the character is that's saying that and you immediately when you hit a false note it's like hitting a false note on a piano and it's always comes back to dialogue so 
that was, I think, one of the benefits as far as going forward and wherever I end up going now, um, definitely from, uh, from acting, from, you know, reading script. Right, right. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine the undertaking when you're talking about the dialogue. What I think of when I think of a perfect person that writes dialogue really well is Quentin Tarantino to me. I think yes. he's good at dialogue. You know, I really, it's believable. It feels real natural. It doesn't feel um, contrived or written from a script. You know, I, I wanted to ask you all kinds of things besides Camp Colebrook. That wasn't the first thing you wrote though, correct? Um, well, no, I did write a script before that. That is correct. Okay. Yeah. Actually, no, I wrote two scripts before that. I did take a crack at one, I believe, in 2009, 2008, somewhere in there. And uh, it was a flaming hot piece of shit, <laughs> as, <laughs> as they are. I mean, and that's the thing is, uh, you know, it takes you, you write a lot to get to, you know, to where you can recognize what's good. And the most important thing is having peers or, you know, people above you read it. And when they give you, you know, positive or hopefully, you know, very exuberant feedback, um, then you know that you're kind of getting there. But yes, I did. Uh, there were two before uh, Colebrook. That's correct. I can't wait to see Camp Colebrook. I, I did go on this uh, to the website, typed in Camp Colebrook and then uh, video. And there's like a like a three minute scene with one of your uh, paranormal investigators is going through just a creepy cobweb filled bathroom slash shower and she's going in to adjust the camera and then slowly you start seeing the curtain closing and i'm like this is creepy so where where can we find camp colebrook so colebrook uh you know that's the thing you know they get done you know post-production and you know uh, they'll test it and then they'll do some tweaks if they need to. So the release of Camp Colebrook uh, f- that I'm told from the producers and distributor uh, will be April and May. So it's oh, going okay. to be, uh, from what I'm told right now, it's going to be released on 500 screens nationwide for three weeks. Um, and then after that, they'll, unless it did like absolutely phenomenally great, maybe they would expand it, but it's very rare that happens where something catches fire, like uh, paranormal activity, which, you know, was like 2000 screens, I think maybe, maybe right. a lot more, but, um, yeah, that's the, that's, uh, the distribution rollout for it. So it'll get about a three week on 500 screens and then. Uh, it'll go into, uh, you know, video on demand and then the other trickle downs from that, uh, probably Netflix and Amazon, whatever they make. And then, of course, there's, uh, you know, the foreign portion. I don't know when the release will be uh, foreign, but, you know, they do have a uh, foreign distributor for it as well. So I'm not well, sure how that usually works. You're you have a fantastic producer. So the name alone, Joe Dante. People know that name if you're a Gremlins fan or anything. So you have Joe Dante and then you've got director Andy Palmer and starring Daniel Harris and Chad Michael Murray. So it sounds like there there's some people on there already that are known in the screen type, like Daniel Harris known as a screen. And it did really well at Shriekfest, correct? Yeah, Shriekfest and Horror Hounds. Uh, it won Best Picture at both of those. Um 
so yeah i mean the cast really seeing it seeing them in it you know and then seeing them on location um i just they did such an incredible job with the cast that's the one thing that i'm really just amazed about i didn't have a full you know handle of chad michael murray i obviously had seen some things that he had done and i had seen a few things of daniel harris but to see him work on location then of course with the finished product um they were just they're you know they're pros they're pros yeah. for a reason they bring it and they're believable and you know chad completely bought in as that title character because without him without that role the movie doesn't go i mean right. it's because you know he's he's our main guy and um he just handled it uh, so well you kind of answered you kind of answered my question i was going to ask you next i was going to just ask you how did you feel after seeing your your work on the big screen but you kind of summed it up it's it's got to be exhilarating to see all the blood sweat and tears at the time of marking things down and erasing and doing whatever well do people use erasers anymore you're probably doing it all on the computer but to, <laughs> i but do to see it, i do <laughs> do you use an eraser still I use an eraser still. I do. I use pencil a lot for longhand notes, whatever. Um, yeah, I do. And then I'll use, you know, a laptop like normal uh, current. Old, old school. <laughs> You're old school. Well, it brings me to how long does something such like Camp Colebrook to write a screenplay? How, how long does it take you to do uh, to do that? I mean, was it years? Was it how long? No. And that's the thing, you know, once you you know, get into hopefully a pocket where you're hired, you become a hired gun for producers to write projects. Okay. Um, you know, you have to deliver first drafts relatively quickly. I mean, actually writing the screenplay itself, that actually goes, and I think most uh, writers would tell you that, that actually goes very quick. That's one of the quickest processes is actually writing it. Of course, getting the dialogue right, but, you know, like a first draft. You can get a first draft out very quickly. I mean, I could probably pound out a first draft of a script. It would be pretty shitty, but probably in about three to four weeks. But oh wow! The, but the biggest thing, and most writers will tell you this too, the thing that takes the longest is um, – created an outline an outline you know a, a three-act structure where there's a first act second act third act of course for the climax um you know create you know finding the seed idea and then building it out from there um and of course you're, you're enhancing your characters because you really want um you want your stories to really be character driven, even when they're not, you know, when they're in the vehicles of big, you know, set pieces, it's still, um, you know, behind your characters that you're moving forward. So, you know, that's one of the longest things. I mean, you could take months getting an outline so that it's right. And, you know, also working, you know, with an agent or manager, you know, they generally want you to write an outline first, well, first, they want you to write a log line, you know, just the initial blurb, you know, uh, paranormal crew sets out to investigate a summer camp where a murder had happened 30 years ago. They want you to kind of get that first and then an outline of it because they want to approve it because they know the amount of time you're going to spend on that, like months for the outline, um, you know, a beat sheet or however you want to uh, work out from there. Um, they want to make sure they want to 
get a good feel. Is this a good story before you traipse off and, you know, you like the outline. So you go ahead and write it and then, you know, it doesn't hit certain check marks or things that you think are interesting or, you know, captivating for an audience just are not. And I've done this before. I've thought, you know, I knew better and I've just gone out and written something. And it was, I mean, I like both of them, but you know, as far as when it came to my agent, he just, you know, he read it and he's just like, yeah, I don't really like this portion or I really don't like this character or it's not scary enough. If you're trying to write in horror, that's probably the worst thing you'll hear because it just, it, it really grinds your bones to hear yeah. someone say it's not scary enough. And usually what that means from the end of an agent or a sales, a person that's looking to sell your material is it's not commercial enough. And yeah. so you okay. do have to, you have to hit certain earmarks, you know, as far as not jump scares per se, but you notice in horror movies, even not very good ones that every 10, 15 minutes, some like a cat jumps out of in the window or something foolish. Uh, I so, noticed that. Yeah. And, and that can be annoying, but that is a total studio type of note. Right. Yeah. Well, I noticed, I noticed that in just that little scene that I watched, you, you know what scene obviously I'm talking about because you wrote the movie. But... Yes, I do. But they've had different trailers out. I think that's the trailer from entertainment weekly. Yeah. yeah, it was, but it's interesting to me because as I'm watching the trailer or watching, yeah, the trailer for it and she's going through and like one of the cobweb hits her and like you get this eerie, creepy music that just gives you that terrible feeling anyways with the music. Now I'm curious when you're writing, so you're writing that screenplay, do you say uh, Sandy walks down the hall? insert creepy music or is that so how does that work <laughs> no no and that's that's a really stupid question no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> no because no, i'm like so no i know <laughs> no and that's a i'm completely i mean that no that's not that is something that is handled in post i okay. believe that a director probably reading the script depending on how the director works some of them work with uh, internal musical cues where they'll see something and they know a tone because music sets the tone of a scene. It really does. Yeah. Oh, hell you know, yeah. Whatever it is, comedy, romance, horror. Yeah. I mean, it basically is the, the card to tell you um, what kind of a movie are we watching. But right. no, any, any of the musical cues, you know, there's a composer that comes on. Usually they're either hired before or right after the um, the filming is wrapped and then uh but that's an interesting process into itself because you know a composer watches that film naked not they're not naked in the living room <laughs> they watch that film though with uh you know really rough cut sounds the voices of the characters usually don't match because they haven't you know smoothed out all the sound levels and so they really watch it and they're i you know, the directors obviously have that too. And, they, and they'll talk about it and they'll notate it, what they want to do in what scenes. Um, so it's, it's amazing. Yeah. The process, it really is the yeah. process in that. So speaking of that, what's been your biggest takeaway from this, that process? Uh, I mean, have you learned, have you learned uh, something where you say, you know, what, I would do this different maybe, or just your biggest takeaway? Um, well, yeah, that's another funny thing, too, because most writers um, and I think anyone in a creative it takes on a creative endeavor 
Um, you want control of the piece. I mean, right. I mean, I love Andy and what he did is fantastic, but I think you always kind to want to have that feeling that, you know, you would like to pull the trigger on certain right. things. But I think the biggest thing that I learned overall for the whole thing is um, patience. <laughs> it's really because, you know, it's really, it takes, it takes so long and there's so many ups and downs on the road to even getting to a film that goes into production and then finishes and then post. And then, you know, there's multiple cuts of the finished piece as well. And, you know, the, it's, it's, it's a lot of patience because you would think it would be, obviously I'm thrilled to death that, you know, I wrote it because there's a lot of times you can write scripts, sell them. And, you know, there's guys that sell scripts all the time and write them and they never get made. And so right. I think that's something that would really drive me nuts but i mean there's people that make a living doing this that they've sold scripts and they do a lot of script doctor work too fixing other scripts but they sell them in some big sales too and they never see the light of day for whatever reason because all it takes is one person to say no up the chain of producers from to financers all it takes is one person and it can be derailed and even casting i mean if you lose certain cast members you can lose certain investors you know they want to see certain people in it they'll name five people and if they can't get one of them they'll get you know cold feet and pull out and now your project's dead right right yeah because a lot of a lot of the big movies or whatever they they when the guy gets ready to write it he says i'm writing this for tom cruise i'm already that's who i'm writing it for and if that's the guy i'm thinking of and then if they can't get him then you're getting your your plug pulled I'm sure. Yeah. And I, yeah, exactly. And a lot of those um, are intellectual properties also. So they'll hire a writer to write, you know, like any of the Marvel movies or Mission Impossible or uh, James Bond. But yeah, right. they, you're absolutely right. When you write, though, and not only that, if a script is written and say it falls down the way to um, to an if it's not written with somebody specifically in mind, you know, if an actor then becomes attached like a Tom Cruise, of course, uh, a writer or a different writer or a team of writers is going to go through that and, you know, carve out Tom Cruise in that role. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's amazing that you were able to do this. And I'm I'm curious. So what was the inspiration? I'm kind of jumping over topics. This is kind of the way I am. My brain thinks like this. So I'm sorry if I'm jumping. Yeah, it's OK. I'm, I'm, I'm all about <laughs> mental gymnastics, too. <laughs> yeah, that's, we'll, we'll, we'll get some gymnastics. What was what was the inspiration for it? Because I know I saw also on the IBDM, the Internet Movie Database, that you are a fan of sharks. How come you haven't written anything about sharks? Boy, that's a great you question, to... man. Uh, the, <laughs> the thing about the sharks, it's true. And, you know, my wife knows it. My kids know it. But my wife is always saying, she's like, you should have written that, um, you know, 47 meters down and uh, the shallows. You know, there, there are. And it's true. I am. I'm a huge shark geek. And I always have, yeah. always have been. Um, um, and yeah, I don't know. It's weird I, because I see them like, and then I, you see the next, you know, like that 47 meters down and then you're thinking, well, I guess there's nothing else to be done as far as writing a shark movie outside of Sharknado, but there is, you know, you just, right. I, you're not seeing it yet, but that's a great question. I would, and you know, it's true. You, you write the best about what you're most passionate about. And it's yeah. true. If you're hired to write something, a, 
uh, screenplay for somebody else and you don't know anything about the area or whatever it is, if it's not something that is really coming from your background, it's hard to get fully invested. So I would think doing something with sharks would be ex- exactly that. <laughs> yeah. But as far as yeah. the inspiration for Coldbrook, I think the inspiration for it was, well, one, it is a real place, but to actually to write it, I think it was because of the failure of my script before that. To... Okay. So that, that gets a fire underneath it where you were just like, you know what, I, I've got, I'm, I'm made to be a writer. I know it. That I... Hey, you there? Yes, I am. Jesus. We so don't... wait a minute. We don't have to do that all over, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, Patrick, this is We Live on a Planet. No, we do not. We do not. <laughs> I don't know what happened. That's uh, happy little accidents, I guess. Once in a while here on Anchor, being that it is a free I, I can't I can't bitch or complain about it. It's a free podcasting host. There has been times where calls do get dropped, and so we just move forward. No oh, okay. Um, no big deal. So let's see. Oh, so the uh, inspiration for writing Colebrook was yeah. it was from the this script that I had before that I had written this heist script that I loved. I was very passionate about it. Um, you know, and like I said, it did get me kind of a little bit the, a toe, a toenail on the map. But what it did is, you know, I just people really liked it or some people didn't care for it much. But, you know, it definitely was original. You know, it definitely had that going for it. And finally, you know, you know, somebody that I look up to, a fellow screenwriter, you know, who's who's far above me in the game at that time said, you know, hey, man, you know, because I kept trying to make changes to it, uh, small tweaks here and there. And they finally just said, hey, man, you know, it's a really good script, but honestly, it's just too weird. (laughs) And so (laughs) it's just too weird. And, you know, for that genre. And so just what do you like? What genre do you like? And of course, my go to, you know, as a kid was horror. And then, of course, working in, you know, the special effects makeup stuff. You know, I loved horror and, you know, I was, I was a connoisseur of it. And so I thought, you know what, I could, he said, just, he told me, he's like, just find a, what's the genre that you can just, you know, really knock out of the park. And so I thought horror. And then I thought, well, you know, if I was doing horror, what would I do? And, you know, there were definitely some influences that you will never see in Coldbrook, even on the page and on the screen. But one of the big ones that I was taken with uh, at the time, was a movie called Sinister that came out in 2012, I believe, or 2013. Um, it's a Blumhouse movie with Ethan Hawke. And so I loved the style of that. But I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to find my own thing? And then, you know, growing up in upstate New York and camping a lot. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, the atmosphere just lends itself to it. It really does. And and that's one of the big things is, is the environment. The environment plays so much in novels, I guess, if you're writing that, but definitely reading novels, you know, the environment is everything. And, you know, screenwriting is the same way. You really want to try to set up. And a lot of that is done by the director and cinematographer afterwards. But as the writer, I think it's really good if you can ground something and really nail that portion of it, the environment. So I knew, you know, the Adirondacks or something in there, I would want to set it in that location. 
But one that really jumped out was this uh, camp that I used to go to with my parents and my brother um, every year uh, called Butler Lake. And it was actually on, it was the town was Coldbrook, but the name of the place was called Butler Lake. And my parents were avid square dancers, as you probably well know. Yeah. And they would get together with like 30 other couples and rent out this boys camp. It was a summer camp for a weekend. And, you know, the kids would go with their parents. So the parents would go into the big rec hall and square dance all night. And the kids would just go off and do whatever they wanted. I mean, we'd get into trouble, all kinds. It was great. There was a lake. But I will say, for whatever reason, it just stuck with me. Um, there was something about it. I had had the shit scared out of me several times there, you know, obviously probably people playing pranks on me. Cause I believe I was like seven, eight, nine, maybe at the time, 10, maybe, but you know, it was just the, 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 something about the look of that place and the general, I always had, I loved it. It was exciting, but it always had this sense of dread about it. Yeah, and I can't put my finger on it, but it was something that always stayed with me. So then I thought, um, you know, this place, this location, this will be the setup. But what's the story? And then, you know, finding the story, you have to kind of set it to encapsulate that environment. And I didn't want to do a straight off, you know, killer. I knew it wasn't going to be I knew it would be something paranormal, um, which is what Sinister used. But it was this kind of on the way of this demon. Um and then I loved, I, I'm a huge fan of the Paranormal Activity movies, even though right. that's kind of a down thing. Nobody wants to see found footage films anymore. I loved those movies. I thought, I think it was part one and part three were some right up there with some of the scariest moments that I've ever seen on film. Yeah, I have to agree. There was one of, one of the Paranormals, and I'm not sure which one it is. It's probably the first one it's that person is just standing over the bed for like how many hours Yeah, standing there and not moving. And I was like, that is some, it's like giving me chills right now. I'm like that. It was creepy. And there was no, no blood, no nothing. It was just that of somebody standing there was creepy. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it was. And I will say the thing that really, really, you know, imprinted on my kind of DNA in that area that really jumped out from those paranormal movies is the extremes they got from minimal um, scares, from minimal movement. I mean, just the, right. they had the first scare was the door closing just a fraction of an inch that he notices when he's rewatching the tape. And when you see it move, it's one of those spine chillers, you know, from your yeah. ass right up to your neck. And I love that. I love that type of approach where it's not monsters. And, you know, I think when I was younger, I loved, monster movies and that type of thing and you know the serial killers jason and michael myers but it's just i kind of i guess maybe you kind of outgrow it i mean i still have an appreciation for those but um i think i've just leaned to, towards kind of the scarier things or the things that uh feel like they could actually happen yeah oh i'm totally with you on that i i've changed a lot when i was younger but see, we grew up in that era where slasher movies were popular. VHSs were coming out at every corner store, at every mom and pop places. So you could go and get any type of horror movie you wanted. And everybody was trying to copy Friday the 13th anyway. So you had all kinds of slasher films. But I've changed. One of the films that I have that still in my mind creeps me out is Stir of Echoes, that one with Kevin Bacon. 
Oh yeah. And yeah, and that movie just like with her fingernail breaking on on the on the floor and just little things like that that are real. That yep. you like you said that you can relate to that you're real and it's cringing and you're like, "Oh, don't don't do anything with eyes or nails. Please don't touch eyes or nails." <laughs> <You know>? Exactly. <laughs> Those are the big things that we Well, you, you basically I think answered one of my last questions that I wanted to ask you is what what your favorite movie is or what's Alex watching? Oh man. Well, I see I'm this type of <laughs> I get really OCD about things. And my wife would tell you this too. Um, not for like I'm flipping on light switches three times in a row, but <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I do, I get obsessed with things and I will watch them and watch them and watch them. And so and I'm, I have one right now, as far as horror goes, um, that I've watched, I've probably watched it six or seven times. And then got the DVD was Hereditary that came out this year. I've never heard of that. Oh, you have to check out Hereditary. Yes, it's uh, Tony Collette. It's uh, it's definitely it's out on uh, DVD now. You can rent it, and it's actually streaming right now on Amazon Prime. I think. Well, we uh, are we yeah we just oh I'm sorry to interrupt you. No no no. Um, we just but, watched. Go ahead. No go ahead. <laughs> no you. <laughs> no, as so. far as. You know, as that goes, you know, and I watch a lot of documentaries, um, but, you know, right now, my movie that's kind of on repeat right now is uh, is Hereditary. I don't watch it every day, but I've seen it enough and I'm actually thinking about watching it again now. I'm going to have to check that out. My go to movie is Tombstone. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love that. That's my go to movie. And then my brother in law and I, we always have to have this friendly debate because he's like, no, Wyatt Earp's way better. The movie. And I'm like, are you? freaking kidding me what are you smoking no tombstone way better yeah you know it's see the Wyatt Earp one tried to get too historically accurate which was great I I appreciate that but as far as a fun very rewatchable western tombstone all day oh yeah I can put that movie it's so easy to fall in and just watch that thing from start to finish it's so good and obviously Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday is probably his greatest um performance maybe agreed Agree. Yep. I would have to agree that or uh, real genius. I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 oh man, this was a lot of fun. I really do appreciate you taking time to talk with me and everything like that. And uh, what's next? Uh, well, I've got a project right now that we have in development uh, called the live ones. And uh you know, that's, again, like I said, patience. It's, I believe that was on this, uh, was on a, the blood list, which is a comp- compiled list of the best unproduced screenplays as voted on by industry executives, I guess. Awesome. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. so it was on that. And so we've kind of developed it. We have a team of really good producers on it now. Um, we're finishing up the final rewrite and then they will take it out. To see, and this is a, you know, it's a definitely a bigger budget movie than uh, Camp Coldbrook was. But um, I think the first step is they're going to attach a director and then they will go out to studios with it. Groovy, groovy. That's exciting stuff. I I don't even know how you were able to get Joe Dante for your producer. That's awesome. I yeah. think that that was. Yes. Yeah, awesome. So, so <laughs> Joe Dante, he came on very early in the process, so they, uh, the first producer, Warner Davis, and Andy Palmer, who's the director, 
they acquired the project first and then they took it to another production company which is renfield entertainment that's joe dante's company well one of his producers there found it i don't know where he found it he read it i don't know where i mean my agent actually they had taken it out you know to studios and had gotten close on a few deals at relativity and new line um, so maybe he saw it in some trickle down there, but he saw it and, and reached out to Warner and Andy and said they would be interested in talking um, about coming on as producers. So they sat down with Joe and Joe was more of an advisory role. But of course, because of his name, um, he helps to attract the finance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Did that um, were you a little starstruck at first? Um, do, you get, do you get starstruck or no? Because you've been in movies. You you were in a movie and all that stuff. So do you even get Yeah, starstruck? but that was different. Um, no, I don't actually. I don't like bother. I mean, obviously you see, you know, celebrities and things like that out here a lot. But no, I wasn't. I mean, with him I was just because, you know, he's done so many incredible movies. You know, The Howling and The Burbs. And, yeah. Um, but he's the a burbs. real down-to-earth. Uh, friendly, very nice man, uh, very knowledgeable, very, I mean, razor sharp, smart guy. Awesome. Yeah, the, the Burbs was awesome. I guess I didn't realize he produced that. That was a good movie. No, he directed that. Oh, that's directed. The big thing. Yeah, that's the big thing with Joe. You know, he's no to- he's known more for the directing end of it. Yeah, and that so was now- a good movie. He'll come on and now executive produce, uh, you know, different projects that he likes and you know, that was one of the, the great positives when they did their initial screening at Joe's house. I wasn't there, but they did the initial screening of Coldbrook at Joe's house just to get his input on what needs to change. He, he give they you know, they give notes. Producers always do on a first screening. And, um, you know, he just as soon as it was, it was done, obviously it had a lot of rough edges because it was a first cut. But, you know, he turned to them and said, this is the most commercial thing that I've ever produced. Awesome. So, yeah, I have a feeling when it hits these 500 screens in April and May, we're going to we're going to see some good things coming out of Camp Cobrook. I really do have that feeling. Well, I hope you're absolutely right. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be. And then will you still make time for We Live on a Planet if that happens? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I'll have to get you to do your live after you see it, your live uh, critique of the movie. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to do that. So when I get to see it, that will we got a date that night. I've got that uh, down that we will be talking again. I look forward to it. And I, I know you're a busy guy. So thank you for giving me this amount of time that you gave me. And it no, awesome. it's my pleasure. This wait. has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was it was a blast. And I, you know, I, I can't wait for everybody to hear it now where can we find you is there any do you do you promote yourself any social media or anything that you want to let anybody know where we can find you uh i am on twitter okay i've got that information i can give that uh with the show notes yep i'm on twitter and then just facebook as a personal account okay yeah i'll put that stuff out that way if anybody wants to seek you out and find out what your next project might be they can find out what when we might hear from the live ones as well absolutely that sounds great this was fun i really appreciated your time and uh i had a blast yeah i did too cool cool man thank you so much i'm going to put this right up so uh tell a friend all right i will man all right my friend thanks so much i do appreciate it you got to have a good night okay you too peace all right bye-bye